Please support the Historian's Podcast by clicking on the GoFundMe link on our homepage, bobcudmore.com. Hi, this is Brian Jackson, and I'm the author of a forthcoming book called Why the Titanic Was Doomed. Uh, The Titanic, the most magnificent ocean liner of her time, was doomed and really destined for disaster even before she left the docks at Southampton. Uh, She was doomed by her owner, doomed by her designers, doomed by the men who sailed in her, and doomed even by her sister ship. And uh, the book will be coming out in April, which is in time for the 110th anniversary of the sinking. And Titanic continues to fascinate us uh, even after a full century has gone by, a disaster that uh, each new generation finds fascinating and interesting. And uh, hopefully this new book that I've come out with answers some additional questions and brings folks up to date on all of the things that went wrong and doomed the Titanic. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. It's a night we've remembered over and over again, the night when the White Star Ocean Liner Titanic hit an iceberg and sank in April of 1912. You gave us a a good list there, uh, Brian, of the... uh, ways the Titanic was doomed, as your uh, book title uh, states. But the one that I find most interesting, how was it doomed by its sister ship? I believe the Olympic? Yes, the Olympic was actually built first. The Olympic went into service in 1911. And the idea was that uh, what happened was Cunard, which was the rival to the White Star Line, Cunard had come out with two new ships, the Laura... uh, the Lusitania and the Mauritania, and they were starting to cut into White Star's business pretty substantially. So the head of the White Star line was J. Bruce Ismay, and he had dinner, uh, I believe, in 1907 with Lord Perry, who was the chairman of Harlan & Wolf, which was a shipbuilder in Belfast. And this is the company that White Star had always gone to to have its ships built. And they came up with a plan to develop three massive liners that would be the largest ever built. And uh, these three service uh, ships would go into service on the, on the transatlantic from England to the U.S. And uh, the idea was that uh, this would really give them an edge and a leg up on the canard liners. So Olympic uh, went into service in 1911. Too much fanfare and attention. And what happened uh, on its fifth fifth voyage, uh, leaving Southampton, uh, it was going down the river, and the ship turned in front of a British war cruiser called the Hawk. And the Hawk had a reinforced bow, which was designed to ram ships or submarines in wartime. As the Olympic turned, the captain of the Hawk didn't quite expect this uh, huge liner to turn in front of him. And, and the men that ran the uh, Olympic and these large ships really didn't understand the physical forces involved. I mean, this was uh, 882 feet long, the largest ship ever built, largest man-made moving object. And so the suction of the wake as the Olympic passed by literally drew the Hawk into the side of the Olympic and damaged the, the starboard side. Uh, not only punched a hole in it, but also bent the starboard propeller shaft. Mm. So Olympic had to be, uh, uh, have that cancel voyage. They patched her up and limped her back to Belfast where she could be repaired. And of course they wanted to get the Olympic back into service as quickly as possible because you're not making any money when the ship is laid up. 
So they diverted both men and materials from Olympic, uh, from Titanic rather, which was still being built, to the Olympic. And this included the starboard propeller shaft. They took the starboard propeller, propeller shaft out of the ti- uh, Olympic or out of the Titanic and put it into the Olympic. This resulted in the Titanic's maiden voyage sailing date being postponed about a month. Titanic originally was supposed to sail on its maiden voyage in March of 1912, and it was pushed back to April 10th of 1912. And the reason Olympic wound up playing a major role in Titanic sinking is that if you looked at the North Atlantic in March of 1912, the shipping lanes were pretty much free of ice and icebergs. By the time April arrived, the Labrador current had pulled all of this ice down out of the North Atlantic into the shipping lanes and directly into Titanic's path. So had Titanic sailed when it originally was supposed to in March, chances are, you know, it would have been uh, inconsequential. It would have been uh, just a standard trip, even though it would have been its maiden voyage, of course. But there would not have been all of this ice that presented such a fatal hazard to the Titanic uh, in April as it did. So mm-hmm. Olympic, yes, really did have a, have a role in this, the sinking of its sister. The name of the book is Why the Titanic Was uh, Doomed, published by Penn and Sword, or British company, I believe. Uh, Brian Jackson, who's the author, uh, joins us. I've known Brian a number of years. He's worked in radio news, television news, radio comedy. Uh, he started two radio stations. He's been a public relations officer for two colleges and held similar public relations jobs for New York state officials, including former Governor Mario Cuomo. And he's also a great teller of tales and a real funny man, and he, and he might prove that to us before before we're done. But doing all these other things, why did you, how did you decide to write like any book, and then especially this book on the Titanic? Well, it's interesting. It actually started in seventh grade. Uh, I hated English. I was a horrible English student, and uh, we would be required from time to time to do book reports. And this to me was just pure drudgery. And they handed out a list of uh, books that were for sale. I believe it was Scholastic Services. I don't know if they're still around, but uh, from time to time, they would send around a list of books that you could buy for 50 cents. And I started going through the list and nothing caught my attention or really anything Mm -hmm. I was interested in. And suddenly I came across a little synopsis about a book called A Night to Remember, which was written by Walter Lord. And I read that little synopsis about how this magnificent ship uh, uh, went on its maiden voyage and was uh, struck an iceberg and, you know, all of a sudden uh, in a couple of hours sank and uh, took 1,500 lives with it. And that caught my attention. So that's the book I ordered and figured, well, you know, I'll see if I can wade through it and write some kind of a book report. And when I got the book, uh, and I still have it, <laughs> believe it or not. It cost me 50 cents at the time. Yeah. Um, I started to read it, and I couldn't put it down. It was the first time I ever picked up a book and started reading it and had to read it all the way through because uh, Walter Lord had done such a magnificent job. He had interviewed some 60 survivors of the Titanic and documented the minute-by-minute events that involved the sinking 
from then on, I just was always fascinated by it. And every time something would come along about the Titanic, I would devour it. To this day, I, I actually, my guest room in the house is the Titanic bedroom. I have a piece of the coal that <laughs> uh, was brought up from the Titanic. I have a life jacket from James Cameron's uh, movie, Titanic. And my most prized possession is a beautiful watercolor of the Titanic that was signed by Melvina Dean, who was the last survivor. Um, she was only uh, two months old when the ship sank. And uh, I did meet her. I did a TV interview with her back when I worked at Channel 13. She was kind enough to sign this uh, uh, watercolor to me. So uh, it's just always been fascinating. But the one thing I realized in, in deciding to do this book was I never saw all in one place all of the circumstances that contributed to the sinking and the doom of the Titanic. And uh, I kicked around, uh, you know, I had started writing a little bit here and there, finally basically kind of finished up a manuscript in the thought that, well, you know, maybe there's an off chance someone would be interested in publishing this, or at least maybe I could put it up on the internet or something. And uh, I sent it to a friend of mine who enjoys history. He read it and he, I sent it to him. He got it on a Sunday, believe it or not. And Tuesday night, he calls me and goes, you've, you've got to do something with this book. I found it fascinating. And I said, really? And he goes, oh, yeah. He goes, uh, it's just, just a wonderful uh, uh, explanation of everything that happened and so informative. And even though you've uh, explained the technical side, you've done it in such a way that someone with no knowledge about the Titanic would be able to understand it and follow it. And I thought that was very complimentary. And so I, uh, I basically took the manuscript, I did a little bit more work on it, and the following day, Wednesday, uh, I sent it to a publisher in England that had published somewhat similar books and did a lot of maritime history. And literally the next morning, Thursday morning, I was uh, doing my morning constitutional <laughs> and looking at my phone, and here's an email back from uh, Pen and Sword Publishers in England saying, we want to publish your book. And I was wow. absolutely floored. So uh, I was expecting dozens of rejection letters and to, to find a publisher on the first shot, uh, I thought was uh, pretty well, lucky and amazing. That's more than remarkable. I mean, have you ever written a book before or published a book before that somebody else published or no? No, I've written uh, several thousand news articles and press releases uh, and designed and written websites, but this is the first foray into book publishing. So uh, I was uh, I was really surprised when, when I found a publisher that wanted to do something with it. And uh, as we speak, it has just gone to the printer and will be out uh, in April. Okay. Well, let me uh, give you the timeline here. We were recording in early March, uh, the, the plan at the Historian's Podcast is to debut this podcast or right around the anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic, which is April 14, April 15, kind of. Do you think the book will be ready by then? Uh, it seems like so many things are being delayed because of the pandemic and so forth. I talked to the publisher today, in fact, and uh, they told me they're they have a target date of April 30th, but they're going to try to make it before that. So it will be available actually by the anniversary. But as you say, you know, uh, things have been a little disrupted uh, in many industries, but they seem to have a pretty good track record of getting things done and planning. And they've been, a, they've just been great to work with. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm hoping that uh, we'll actually have the book 
available. It is available for pre-order both on the Pen and Sword website out of England. Uh, it's also available for pre-order on Amazon and at Barnes and Noble. So uh, if someone is interested in getting a copy, uh, those are a couple of ways that they might be able to do so. The author is Brian Jackson. The book is Why the Titanic Was Doomed. Let's take a look at some of the other doomed uh, quotes uh, in that little uh, brief uh, introduction you gave us. It was doomed by her owner? Why was that? Yes, when the initial drawings for these ships, and they were called Olympic-class liners because the Olympic was first, and so the ships that followed in the series would all be known as the Olympic-class liners. But when he saw the uh, original drawings, there were two things that he saw right away that he did not want incorporated into the ship's final uh, construction. One was the bulkheads. The Titanic and Olympic uh, were designed that you could flood the first four compartments or any two adjacent compartments and the ship would still float. Uh, the idea was you'd either run into something or something would run into you. The original design had the bulkheads going all the way to the top deck. And this would, of course, literally put partitions into the first and second class areas of the ship. And Jay Bruce Ismay, who was chairman of White Star Line, he wanted this ship to be opulent and he wanted everything to be open and spacious. And he didn't want these partitions, these bulkheads, breaking up the space of the ship in these particular areas, first and second class. And so he said, no, 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 I, I, we can't have these partitions, these bulkheads uh, stretching up through these areas of the ship. So Thomas Andrews, who is the designer, lowered those bulkheads so that uh, Ismay's concern and criticism would be met. The ship could still float with its first four compartments damaged or any two adjacent compartments. And there were 16 compartments in all that the ship was divided into. But the problem was when he lowered the bulkheads, some of the uh, bulkheads in the front of the ship where first class and second class was mostly located were only 10 feet above the waterline. So what happened was when Titanic struck the iceberg, it did not hit it head on. It hit it with a glancing blow and it opened up not four, but five compartments to the ocean. Hmm. So as the ship was pulled down by the bow, uh, the water simply overflowed that lowered bulkhead into the next compartment. And if you've ever held an ice cube tray and filled it, uh, mm -hmm. cascading the water from compartment to compartment, that's basically what happened to the Titanic. As the ship was pulled down by the bow, the water just overflowed those shortened bulkheads. And so that particular piece of the design uh -huh. very much led to the Titanic being doomed. Titanic was actually designed to carry more than 40 lifeboats. I believe it was either 44 or 46 lifeboats. The Davits could each hold three lifeboats. The problem was, as Bruce Ismay saw it, was that the lines of the ship were going to be obstructed by all these lifeboats. And most of these were up on the first class deck. He wanted his passengers to be able to enjoy the vast expanse of the ocean, and they wouldn't be able to do that if these lifeboats were in the way. So he had the lifeboats, the number of lifeboats cut back to 16. And there were also four collapsibles that were on top of the wheelhouse, which would give really a total of 20, but only 16 were really true lifeboats that could seat 65. Um, and this meant that only 1,000 
178 individuals or passengers could be put into lifeboats, and the Titanic had over 2,200 people on it. In fact, the disaster could have been much worse. Titanic could carry as many as 3,500 people, passengers and crew, yet it still would only have lifeboats for less than mm-hmm. 1,200. So had the, had the lifeboats been there, uh, obviously there <clears throat> might have been uh, less casualties, but as it was, uh, there was only less than 1,200 uh, seating for 1,200 passengers and crew. And you also say that Titanic was doomed by the men who sailed her up to and including the captain. And, and who was the captain? The captain was Edward Smith. And he had been quoted earlier as saying that uh, he could foresee no circumstance in which a, a ship would founder and sink. Uh, he had believed and was quoted in, I believe, Shipbuilder magazine uh, in the early 1900s as saying that modern shipbuilding had gone beyond that. So uh, he was convinced that there was nothing out there that nature could throw at these new magnificent ships that would doom them. And that attitude um, not only uh, you know, resulted in the Titanic being doomed, but also, you know, taking so many lives with it. Uh, because many of the passengers also thought the ship was unsinkable. And the interesting thing about that and that, uh, that motto being given to the ship or slogan or whatever, or, uh, that, that it was unsinkable, the White Star Line and the builder, Harlan and Wolf, never, ever said the ship was unsinkable. They said it was practically unsinkable and shipbuilder magazine uh, actually put it in its article as saying it was practically unsinkable but when other media picked up uh, the titanic story as it mm. uh, you know was getting ready to be launched the word practically got dropped and so the common reference was that the ship was unsinkable and, of course, this uh, created problems because as they decided to lower the lifeboats and get people off the ship, many people didn't want to get in the lifeboats. Uh, they felt, why would we get in these tiny little lifeboats and go out in this cold Atlantic uh, where the air is freezing when we can stay on this nice, big, unsinkable, warm ship? So uh, many of the lifeboats left with far less capacity than they could hold. Uh, the first lifeboat was number seven. It could hold 65 people, and it left at about 27. Hmm. Now, was the captain um, going too fast? I mean, I've always heard that, that the Titanic was speeding through this nest of uh, dangerous icebergs, and he should have slowed down. Well, that was the finding of the Board of Trade. They said that this is the British Board of Trade, which held a hearing after the sinking, and the British Board of Trade, basically, uh, that was their finding, that the ship had been traveling too fast. But at that time, uh, early, you know, early 1900s, it was the common practice to keep a ship going at its regular cruising speed, which the Titanic was traveling around 24 miles an hour. Um, the common practice was you continued to go at your normal cruising speed until you actually came upon danger and the titanic had been in clear water right up until the time the iceberg appeared so uh captain smith had told the um uh his crew on the on the uh, at the helm that if there was any doubt at all they would have to slow down 
but uh, his, uh, you know, the way he operated the ship and others operated their ships was that you didn't slow down until you actually came upon the danger uh, that might cause a problem. So uh, the ship never did slow down and uh, was traveling at almost top speed when it hit the iceberg. Mm. Was um, Were there lookouts uh, looking for icebergs uh, throughout that night? There were. There were two life, uh, uh, two lookouts, and uh, there were six in all. They each worked, I believe, a two-hour shift before they would be relieved because it was so cold and there was no protection up at the crow's nest, which was uh, on the first mast of the ship. Uh, so these guys were out there freezing. The other thing is they did not have binoculars. And even at night, binoculars can be helpful in seeing what's ahead of you. Uh, at the last minute before Titanic sailed, the officer who had the key to the locker where the life, uh, where the uh, uh, binoculars were kept, uh, he was changed out for another officer, and he left the ship and had the key in his pocket and forgot to give it to his replacement. So they couldn't open the locker to get the binoculars out, wow. and so the uh, the lookouts uh, had to rely on their own eyes. They did not have binoculars. Now, there were two other issues that made it very difficult for the lookouts. Number one was it was a moonless night. Normally, would you, you know, moonlight would help you see any objects that would be in front of the ship, such as an iceberg. The moonlight would reflect off of it. There was no moon that night. Also, the North Atlantic was a dead calm. It was as smooth as glass. And so you didn't have any waves that would be breaking against the base of the iceberg and throwing up foam, which, again, would help you see, you know, any obstacle that was ahead of you. So there were three things. Uh, one, they didn't have binoculars. Two, they didn't have uh, the help of the moonlight. And number three, they didn't have the help of waves breaking at the base of the iceberg. So mm -hmm. by the time that the, the um, lookout saw the iceberg, it was literally only, I believe, 34 seconds ahead of them at the speed they were traveling. And they had to ring the bridge, of course, tell them they had seen an iceberg. The uh, helmsman uh, who was on uh, duty then had to telegraph the engine room because they didn't actually have direct control of the engines. They had to send it by a telegraph, which would uh, send the message down to the engine room as to what they wanted done. So there was a delay. He had to go over, ring the telegraph. The engine room then had to have uh, valves turned and so forth to redirect the steam that was going into the engines to reverse the engines. So uh, by the time the Titanic actually uh, started to turn, uh, they were well upon the iceberg. They, they literally did not have enough time mm -hmm. to get out of the way. Well, Brian, we're practically out of uh, time, but let me, there's one question I read sort of looking up stuff about the Titanic. Apparently now, and this has come after the finding of the wreckage of the Titanic underwater, it apparently sank quickly, more quickly than was thought, and it broke into three pieces. In, in movies, for example, it seems a long goodbye on the Titanic, but was it actually a shorter period of time? Titanic actually sank in about two hours and 20 minutes. Uh, it hit the iceberg at 11.40 p.m., and sank at 2.20 a.m., so uh, roughly a little over two hours. 
the water came in so quickly. And part of the problem was not only the lowered bulkheads, but the pumps that they would try to keep ahead of the incoming water were located in the aft portion of the ship. So they lost time by having to rig um, piping and uh, hoses up to where the water was coming in. So um, it lasted actually longer than the designer who was on board. Thomas Andrews was on board the Titanic. He had designed the ship and was on board to see how she would operate on her maiden voyage. Uh, and he saw the water coming in, uh, did some quick calculations, and he thought the Titanic would live maybe an hour and a half, but she actually lived uh, a little bit longer than that. But um, it, it did sink quickly, and it broke into two pieces. The stresses placed on the keel were so great as the bow was pulled down and the stern was pulled up out of the water that it literally snapped the boat in half. And uh, there was great debate about that as to whether the Titanic had actually broken in two. Uh, there were some people who survived and saw the, the, the ship go down and swore that it had broken in two. Uh, and there were others who were adamant that it went down all in one piece. And it wasn't until they found the Titanic in 1986 or seven that they saw that it actually had broken into two pieces. The keel had snapped under those tremendous stresses. And uh, the bow and the stern are about a quarter or a half mile away from each other. Given your interest in the Titanic, have you ever gone on a cruise ship? I haven't. Uh, I've been on the Staten Island Ferry. And I, it's funny, when I was uh, about five years old, my parents took me on the Staten Island Ferry, and I was convinced it was going to sink. But uh, I, I've, you know, interestingly enough, I've always uh, enjoyed boating. Uh, I've had sailboats, power boats. I currently have a pontoon boat, which is. Uh, uh, I, I think just uh, I think under law, once you get to be my age, you're required to have a pontoon boat because <laughs> <laughs> they're slow and pokey and you can't get in any trouble. Um, but I've always enjoyed boating, I mean, but I've never actually been on a cruise. It's something that uh, uh, I might look into sometime. There is a man in Australia who is currently building a replica of the Titanic. It's called the Blue Star Line. And uh, this ship is supposed to be launched at some point, and he is planning on taking the maiden voyage from Southampton to New York once the ship is completed. Um, while it will look almost identical to the Titanic, it will have enough lifeboats and radar and all of the modern technology that uh, we have today that hopefully uh, keep us from having similar accidents in the future. Why is this still a viable story after all these years? You know, there's been so many other tragedies at sea that really, when you look at the loss of life, uh, were far greater. Um, the Donna Paz was, in fact, it's called Asia's Titanic, was a ferry that ran into a oil tanker, and there was a loss of over 4,000 lives. Yet many people, perhaps most people, have never heard of the Donna Paz. Titanic, mm -hmm. I think holds our fascination and continues to draw in uh, the fascination of each new generation that comes along in the simple fact that this was really, I think, the first time in such a dramatic fashion that man thought he had overcome any adversity that could be thrown at him. And yet this magnificent ship that was supposed to be unsinkable 
sank in, you know, a little over two hours after hitting uh, an iceberg and that so many people perished. I think the other fascinating thing is, too, there were several millionaires on this ship. J.J. Astor, uh, Isidore Strauss, who owned Macy's, uh, Benjamin Guggenheim. These were all extremely wealthy men. I mean, J.J. Astor was worth $87 million, which would be about $2.2 billion in today's uh, dollars. And their money could not buy them a seat in a lifeboat. They, they perished. And I think all of these things contribute to just the continuing fascination as people hear about the Titanic and start exploring it a little bit. And the fact that the Titanic had warnings that just kept being ignored about ice in front of it. And um, I think all of these elements just come together to continue to make the story as fascinating today as it was when it happened in 1912. Brian Jackson is author of Why the Titanic Was Doomed, published by Pen and Sword Books uh, from England. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Thank you.